alternative sources of protein are being sought and, and one of these sources is insects. This is such a nascent industry. Uh, I think very often we'll overlook breaches in ethics. There is a limit, but it's something that can always go along with other areas of agriculture. episode of the Greater European Talks podcast. I'm your host Oliver and today we're discussing the future of food. Would you be okay with your meat and dairy coming from livestock fed with fly larvae? How about sitting down for your Christmas meal and rather than seeing a turkey you see a plate of cockroaches? In the face of environmental pressures, overpopulation and food scarcity, can alternative proteins provide the solutions we are so desperately seeking? To discuss this and more I'm delighted to welcome a panel of experts all of whom are in the vanguard of this matter. Firstly we have Dr Henry Grethead Originally hailing from South Africa, Henry obtained his PhD in fat and protein metabolism in ruminants from the University of Nottingham in 1997. Currently, he's researching ruminant nutrition and rumen metabolism at the University of Leeds. Joining him, we have Robert Pienaar, also from South Africa. Robert is a PhD candidate with Insect Doctors, an innovative new EU-funded European joint doctoral program researching how to manage diseases in commercial insect production systems. And completing our esteemed panel today, we have Ude Chao. He is currently a master's student at the University of Leeds researching the viability of adapting black soya flies to act as protein supplements for ruminants, as well as ways to expand the use of insect protein in the ruminant industry. But Mo Chow has worked as part of an insect technology startup in Singapore, where he was an intern, although he ended up taking a leading role in business development, operations, research, and marketing in the firm. Now, I'm not sure I've ever said the word ruminant as much as I have in the last five minutes in my life. But anyway, thank you for being here. Let's get straight to it. So Henry, I'm going to start with you. We often hear that insects are the so-called future of food. What exactly is meant by that? Most of our most of the work um, looking at the use of insects as um, uh, feeds for for animals uh, relates to them being a, a source of protein. So most of the protein that's fed to animals currently comes from from soy, um, and uh, no doubt most people are aware of of uh, the impact soy growing, soy, soybean growing has on the environment. So um, alternative sources of protein are being sought and, and one of these sources is um, insects. Um, and the beauty of insects is that they can uh, be uh, raised off, off waste material. So it's part of uh, the circular economy. So um, making use of food waste rather than simply putting it in landfills or, or whatever. So um, as I say, m most most work is, is associated with exploiting the high protein content of insects um, and then obviously all the other issues associated with using insects. So um, I work with Chow and one of the things Chow is looking at is the uh, problem with chitin, which is associated with protein in insects. But maybe we can talk about that uh, in a while. I say you did a very good job of um, predicting my question arc to all you guys. So that's <laughs> You're talking about the use of waste. What would you say is the, if you had to, is the biggest benefit of adding insects or processed animal proteins into our diets or agricultural practices? Is it just that we can use the waste or is it environmental benefits? Where would you say that lies? We've got to be careful when we say using animal proteins and, and, and fully understand that insects are animals. Um, but uh, there are, there's tight legislation associated with the use of animal protein, particularly for ruminants. Biggest benefit, though, going to your question, is what, well, from in my opinion, is being able to utilize waste. So it is not having to use or um, well, grow new resources, new protein, use land to produce protein. Basically, we are taking um, food that is grown for uh, human consumption or, or some other means, and the byproduct from that can then be used to produce protein, um, and then that can be fed to livestock to meet their protein needs. Well, we'll come back to the question of waste usage um, later on in the podcast. But I was going to ask you um, about the challenges. I mean, I was reading a paper from the European Food Safety Authority in which Molas um, Bavaris, uh, a chemist and food scientist at the FSA, highlighted issues with using insects as a source of protein. And as far as, just as you mentioned, chitin is a major component of an insect's exoskeleton. Um, and also there are allergy concerns with the proteins involved. So what do you see as the biggest challenge in terms of integrating these into food systems? Yeah, the uh, allergens, that, that's something that, that I don't really have much experience in, but that is a potential issue, um, as is the case with um, most proteins, um, particularly animal proteins. The, the challenge that sort of I'm involved with through Chow is, 
is the chitin, and, and I'm sure Chow can uh, talk uh, at much greater length than I can about the, the issues with chitin. But uh, chitin is pretty, uh, pretty tough stuff, and mammals do not possess the enzymes capable of digesting it, and so therefore needs to be got, got rid of in order to fully exploit the, uh, the protein digested. And so, I mean, you, you mentioned at the start, Mentioning the term ruminants a lot, one of the beauties of ruminants is that obviously they have this huge population of microorganisms in the foregut, um, and they do have the capability of um, uh, digesting things that the mammalian animal cannot. Um, and so one of the things is, could you feed insect protein uh, to ruminants and without having to remove the chitin? Uh, that's something that Chow's looking at. So, so yes, I'm sure there are, as we pursue this sort of novel form of, of, of protein, uh, various challenges uh, that we know of and don't know of will, will um, rear their head, but that's one of the beauties of pursuing novel things. It's, uh, it's these challenges that which uh, most scientists thrive on, trying to find answers to and uh, overcoming them. Yeah, for sure. How large would you assess the environmental impact to be, I mean, this may be incorrect, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain ruminants create a really quite large volume of uh, methane, don't they? Which counts as really bad greenhouse gas. So where does that yeah. fit into the equation? Ruminants um, uh, account for approximately 14.5% of, of total uh, anthropogenic, so human-produced CO2 equivalents. And, and most of that, um, well, ruminants' contribution, so 39% of that um, greenhouse gases coming from livestock, so in general, um, comes from um, enteric fermentation, so the fermentation in the rumen. Um, so my main interest is, is making use of fiber, okay? So and that, that does um, form a circle. So um, fiber is a, a major uh, product from agro-industrial byproducts. Um, and so I'm very keen on, on feeding animals um, things that humans can't consume. Um, but one of the problems with high fiber diets is that they are often limiting in nitrogen. And um, while we can feed ruminants non-protein forms of nitrogen, such as urea, um, insect protein is a high quality source of protein and it can be used to um, supplement the diets of high performing ruminants. So if you can get ruminants to make use of fiber more efficiently, um, the amount of methane they produce per unit of product, which um, in the scientific world, they call um, uh, emissions intensity. So the amounts of methane per unit of milk or, or, or meat decreases. So um, if we can find a cheap alternative source of protein that can be used as a supplement to ruminants fed fiber, which us humans can't consume, uh, um, well, we can consume it, but we don't digest it very efficiently, um, then um, yeah, it's, it's all, it's not, it's not going to solve all the issues, but it's part of one of the tools that can be applied to the production of animals, in particular ruminant animals, to help address the uh, environmental impacts that livestock have. Um, from my personal point of view, uh, really uh, a key solution to the environmental impact of livestock produced for human consumption is that we should all think about, uh, well, those of us who, who enjoy uh, consuming animal products, is reducing our intake of animal products. And I think if any, everybody makes uh, a move in that direction, then, uh, then you can, having, can start having a, a signif significant impact on um, reducing livestock's impact on the environment. Interesting. I mean, Robert, saying to you, um, you are quite literally an insect doctor, something that I didn't actually know existed before researching for this podcast. Could you just tell us a little bit about, contextualize what an insect doctor is, what an insect doctor does, and why they're so important if we're going to harness the usage of insects. So insect doctors, the it's more the 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 title obviously is very new. Um, we've had people around for years. Uh, any insect pathologist, basically, uh, or, or even a microbiologist, or sometimes veten veterinarians to some extent, um, uh, can sort of take on this role as an insect doctor. Um, this is more just, uh, for example, the program is, 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 that I'm in right now is just aimed more at uh, training people, uh, training uh, sort of young researchers or, or people within our age gap um, to sort of be that from the get go, um, uh, basically, instead of having to get spend a couple of years trying to get the experience or get the knowledge, because um, uh, at the moment, uh, people, some uh, insect farms or facilities would have a 
an issue. Maybe they have a virus or a bacterial uh, um, uh, outbreak in their colonies, causing either the insects to not uh, perform as well, either grow as well, or causing um, them to die, eventually to them losing entire colonies, um, which of course can really hamper the production output that they are looking to get. Um, and maybe they have a viral infection to which they can only send to, um, they can send to people who are normally virologists or, uh, or, or specialized in viruses or uh, bacteria to bacteriologists, people who are specialized in those. Um, and so they can help them out, uh, um, as particularly the people who are part of the training heads in the program and the supervisors. But um, there was a, a lack of uh, people who sort of could deal with it all in the general scope. So, for example, think of you have your little specialist uh, 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 doctors uh, in terms of human doctors. Um, there weren't really any um, uh, general practitioners who were uh, available. And so this is this is partially what the whole idea is. Why it's important um, is that you have uh, really a large increase now in new into facilities um, uh, coming out around the globe, um, uh, east, west, north and south. And these uh, facilities are also trying to increase uh, uh, the amount of product they can, uh, they can uh, 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 produce uh, as well as the, the, the amount of livestock that they can rear at the same time. Um, and as you increase uh, with any sort of form of production, as you try to upscale things, um, you can run into a lot of issues. And in this case, when you're dealing with livestock, um, a lot of insects can be reared together um, and either very densely um, together in smaller containers. You have the, the issue that maybe a farmer can rear about a thousand cows in a certain uh, paddock. You could multiply that by maybe a hundred thousand times in terms of the number of individuals um, that are being reared as insects. And so you can increase the, the uh, potential for any outbreaks of pathogens, um, sometimes uh, some, bac uh, some bacteria, for example, uh, which don't normally cause any issues when you have uh, insects growing in a laboratory or out in nature. Because there, um, it, uh, there are a lot of insects in a tight space, you allow the opportunity for this bacteria um, or maybe a virus to either reproduce or replicate at a lot a much higher level than it normally does um, uh, than when there are fewer insects around. Um, and this higher level can often uh, trigger things like uh, outbreaks uh, because there's enough of a pathogen um, or an organism which could be act as a pathogen to um, actually cause an issue, uh, which normally wouldn't be the case if it was um, at a much lower level of, um, of, the, of this uh, organism. Um, and likewise, you have actual pathogens, you just have a higher breeding ground for these. Um, and so why insect doctors are important is because a lot of these things you like, uh, for example, as people have experienced with SARS-CoV-2, when it came out, no one knew what to do. Doctors were Skyping each other at the end of every uh, each day. I spoke to a doctor on a plane from Italy and he said when it first came out, they, they had no idea, um, even just uh, sort of uh, uh, different management protocols within the hospitals. They were busy Skyping each other, having these huge sort of um, uh, Zoom sessions, just saying, oh, um, in this part of the hospital, we decided to allocate that to specific patients or just a simple thing as saying, okay, people can go uh, into the lift and make a separate lift for people who have COVID or suspected COVID. Things as simple as that. And so um, uh, with insect facilities, um, Basic management pr uh, pr uh, protocols uh, uh, are things which uh, not everyone sort of knows about or, 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 or is willing to put in. And um, likewise, we don't have any sort of cures or treatments for a lot of these pathogens, which these insects may have. Um, so the insect doctor sort of takes the role of looking more at uh, you know, how do we, how do we uh, best uh, uh, take care of the health of these insects in the colonies? And also how do we deal with these pathogens either when the outbreaks occur or how do we sort of lower the risk of these outbreaks occurring? Mm -hmm. And so there's a very long, long explanation. No. Um, does that sort of answer? Yeah, for sure. No, I find it fascinating that you can maybe apply the theory that you've got as an insect doctor, as it were, to what we're doing as humans. And in fact, a lot of good work has been done on COVID-19 for certain. However, if you can apply your work, not only can you revolutionize food chains, et cetera, that we have, but also if that could be applied to other areas of medicine, I find that remarkable that we could take so much from just an insect yeah. with insects and apply that to something so fundamental as global well, pandemics. A lot of the epidemiology, which might surprise you, I don't know if um, uh, Chow or, or Dr. Greathead are, are familiar with this, 
But a lot of the epidemiology that we see, for example, what a lot of people have heard uh, in terms of uh, uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, um, COVID-19 pandemic, sorry, with talking about R values, uh, 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 looking at the infection rates, um, uh, 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 hospitalizations, a, a lot of the epidemiology that we know today, um, that epidemiologists uh, apply and, and learn about, the bulk of it was actually done on insects. Um, back to way, I think, to the 1800s when people were, were rearing silkworms, wearing, uh, uh, people were busy rearing honeybees. Um, and they've been de dealing back with these pathogens as far back as then. Um, and so they, it was just a lot easier. And a lot of the research that we know and the method, uh, the, the, the sort of the principles that we apply actually come back from that. And most of it came from that, if that makes sense. Mm, definitely. Now, I am host, but of course, if there are any questions from other people in the room, they're welcome to. Um, Henry, I see you've got a very insightful question, so please feel free to usurp me as host and ask directly to Robert if you'd like. Okay, no, I, that, that's really, really interest, interesting what you've said, Robert. I, I've never really thought of the concept of an insect doctor. I always think of insects as being, uh, being uh, indestructible and uh, totally unaffected by um, the normal things that, that affect our health. Does it tend to be fungal, bacterial or, or um, viral infections that most affect uh, insect production units? And, and the sort of second related question is when, when trying to deal with infections on units is, do you actually have treatments or is, the, is it sort of biosecurity or, or trying to prevent infection? I mean, once you get an infection in, in, a, in a, a batch of insects, um, is it possible to ever treat them or do you just sort of uh, write off or, or get what you can? When I've spoken to different facilities, uh, my own colleagues uh, and as well as, as what we've been learning, um, uh, apart from just trying to apply or, or, or consult, is that it's it all depends on where the farm is, what you're rearing, the design of the farm that would determine what's the more uh, a pre predominant agent, um, and also just what's there. I mean, you could uh, you get a facility that's really the conditions are really ideal for maybe, for example, uh, a fungal pathogen. Um, but that fungal pathogen also has to be there. Maybe you, you, your place is quite clean of, of, of any potential pathogenic fungi, but has bacteria present. Um, and so that might be the more, uh, something you see more in your stock. Uh, it also depends on, on, on what's being introduced. Uh, uh, BSF, for example, is what I'm working on in particular, um, is uh, the big concept now is using them as waste management. So uh, the, the the, the, the input waste material that they provide to the BSF can, can, of course, carry a lot of things. But again, that that can host a multitude of different things. So there's no, I would say there's no single answer. Not a lot of the industry, uh, people in industry talk to each other. Um, and, and so I think until we have that, and, uh, uh, and um, I know with IPIF um, uh, trying to uh, do a lot of the regulations and a lot of the sort of health and safety guidelines in the industry, until we have a, a broader look where everyone talks to each other, I think it'd be difficult to sort of say what's the most uh, uh, common. To answer your second question, it depends. Um, some, some pathogens, there are uh, sort of management protocols you can do to try and uh, 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 maybe not uh, treat and cure the outbreak because again, uh, there's very there's little very few treatments or, or, or that you can actually use because um, uh, it's you can't for example if there is a treatment again that's against that particular pathogen like for example there's an antibiotic you can't just take any antibiotic and apply it to an insect colony um, I mean even from insect species to insect species uh, something as simple as uh, tetracycline uh, has a different effect on different insect species so um, you, you can't just take that uh, either so. Uh, it would really depend on what's sort of affecting the insects, uh, where the insects are, and sort of what stage you are in this little outbreak that occurs. Sometimes you have facilities which have to, unfortunately, clear their whole, um, uh, uh, all their stock, clean down the entire facility, and then start again from scratch. There are some who are able to isolate it uh, a single tray in their entire facility before it spreads. It, it's and and that's the the tricky. The uh, that's really what becomes a tricky part because. Prevention is a major part, um, but in terms of the management, it's there are things that can be done. But uh, obviously, prevention, uh, uh, pre uh, prevention, and, and sort of management are the two approaches that are, are, are more realistic. If that makes sense. I would say this is great. Thank you, Henry. You're doing my job for me, making me look even better. Um, I'm also Chow. Hang on in there, because I haven't got you in yet. We are coming to you. Final question to you, Robert, in this section. Uh, this may be a little bit silly. We've had some scares before about pandemics or epidemics 
of things like bird flu, where it can transmit from animal stock into humans. You said earlier about how much scalability of insect production and how much more of the disease there would be. Would there be a risk at all that a, a, a virus could, or any disease, could originate within insects and then spread towards humans? Or is that sort of sci-fi nonsense and I'm completely missing the point? Um, no, it's not sci-fi nonsense. I, I want to be very delicate here because obviously you don't want to send the wrong message. Um, again, that would depend on the type of organism, whether you're dealing with a fungus or a bacteria or a virus. There are bacteria which can be pathogenic to insects um, and also cause some issues for humans or other animals. Um, that comes down to more just how well people take care of their facility. Uh, it's like if you take a whole bunch of, of, of food waste from a restaurant and you let it simmer, um, or if you're not, uh, uh, you don't sterilize and clean it um, before giving it to insects, for example, um, that could cause an issue if you don't, again, don't have a, a proper process where you clean the, uh, the, 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 the insects which you harvest um, or the material that you harvest. Um, uh, that can be a trick, depending, maybe there's no way to do it, in which case uh, people can't really uh, uh, do that process in, in, in industry where they produce a certain product. They'll have to wait until something's possible. But... Um, so in that, in that stage, there's a reason why now the IPIF have to come up with a whole um, guide for safety, health and safety regulations uh, within the insect rearing industry, particularly for insects as food and feed. Um, it's to try and avoid this so that uh, it's just to basically say, okay, we found that rearing insects in this manner has helped reduce any risk of, for example, uh, I won't say E. coli, but maybe um, Klebsiella or, 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 or Proteus bacteria, Staphylococcus aureus, for example, um, uh, to reduce that so that when they actually take their final product, which uh, will then be used by uh, people um, either to feed animals or for their own consumption or for, or for whatever purpose, um, is that the product that reaches them is clean, um, ideally long before it reaches them. So it's not sci-fi. Uh, it, again, it's not the end of the world. It's not necessarily something like COVID where, we, uh, where, where it was the zoonotic which came through, uh, which is always possible no matter where you go. Thank you. Ciao. Thank you for being so patient. Um, just for reference for the listeners, um, Rob mentioned their IPIF, which stands for International Platform of Insects as Food and Feed. Perfect. Right. Ciao. I know that you worked in Singapore, a startup over the summer last year. I think I'm right. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the industry. Um, so I know, for example, Robert's funded by the European Union um, for what he's doing. Does that mean that from where you stand, having worked in Singapore, that the EU is considered to be the, the, the leaders in this industry right now? Or would you say it's more based in Asia? Where, where do you see the balance? It's, it's a very interesting question because when, when it comes to talking about the, the, the whole insect industry, um, it's all quite, like Robert said before, people are not talking to each other. So you can, mm -hmm. you can, you can think of it mm -hmm. as um, um, things are a bit segmented in that way. But EU could be considered a leader in the sense that because the, 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 the regulations around in the EU uh, concerning the, the usage of ingredients for feed tends to be regarded as one of the stricter regulations around the world. And from the perspective of Singapore, a lot of regulations within Singapore that we're using for aquaculture, for agriculture, tends to follow quite closely to that of um, um, the EU because it's based on science, it's based on evidence, and it goes through a, a very rigorous um, method um, to, to determine safety um, and viability of, of the feed. So in, in that sense, you can say that the EU is sort of pushing and leading the, 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 the movement for insects um, as feed. Um, but I, I, I would also like to point out that um, when we talk about leaders, it's it's always very hard to, 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 to say who or what region exactly is the leader right now, just because the entire industry, as I said before, can be quite segmented. People, there, there's not a lot of um, uh, communication between um, countries or between um, uh, industries or, or private, private um, startups and stuff like that. Uh, people tend to be a bit um, scared of um, 
putting out secrets or, or trade secrets. And um, I think that is one uh, interesting point that we should take note of when we talk about the insect industry, because that can be the bit that pushes us forward to innovate more, or it could be the obstacle that restricts us from collaborating further. So I was going to contextualize this a little bit. Um, I mean, in November, the EU approved I think, only the second insect to be fit for human consumption, and that was the migratory locust. Um, and then that was also following a decision in August to allow the use of processed animal proteins and insects to feed non-ruminant farm animals. So in your experiences, Chow, would you say that the industry is regulated productively? Sort of, do you think it struck the balance correctly between keeping practices safe, but also not stifling innovation? Um, and in an ideal world, where would you see the balance? Um, how, how desperately do we need to progress in this industry? Or do you see that we need to go very slowly to make sure it stays safe? It's, 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 not, a, it's not an easy um, thing. It's not something that's easily managed when you talk about food safety and, and then you talk about the, the, the potential of insects to solve a global crisis, the, the food crisis. And... Um, that's that's the problem really and i think to to sum up in in a very nice way it's that um the eu is in my opinion going as fast as they can to push forth a novel feed ingredient um because of its potential to solve most um uh, of the problems that we are seeing today with uh, livestock agriculture and with um, unsustainable um, cultivating uh, practices and stuff like that. But when we talk about insects and especially in its use as a waste management tool, um, it can be very tricky in convincing people that it is safe. Hence, you need the rigorous um, safety um, trials and, and, and all that rigor um, to create an evidence-based um, platform to, to tell people that this novel product that um, we've not really tried before in the last couple of decades in this part of the world is safe for, for human and for animal consumption to the best extent that people can provide here. Um, but having said that, it's also important to remember that problem that we are trying to fight is not keeping trade secrets or, you know, um, trying to overcome regulations and, and that sort. I think the biggest problem that um, the insect industry is going to face eventually when we talk about its use in the global um, food crisis or uh, the global food systems is time. Because... Time is the one thing that will not stop for us or regulations. So how quickly we implement things um, will determine how quickly we turn around, um, you know, unsustainable deforestation in, in the Americas or, you know, volatile feed prices that goes on and off or, you know, um, the, the, the whole um, community uh, coming together, localized production, reducing our carbon footprint, uh, decarbonizing economies, all this ties in and insects is insect protein and a lot of other forms of alternative proteins. They are at the core, at the center of the problem. And the one thing that everybody is, um, that might overlook is the fact that we are running out of time, especially with the COP26 just happening last year and uh, all the, the crisis, all the climate crisis coming together, it's all fresh. I think time is an important factor that we have to you know, keep in our mind while we think about regulations as well. Um, but you know, it's, it's a very fine balance, it's a very delicate balance, and I, I think we cannot and should not compromise on food safety. You said it's not about being safe, it's about convincing people it'll be safe. Do you think we'll ever achieve that? There is always uh, going to be naysayers when it comes to comes to a new product. Um, you you you'll never achieve like a hundred percent 
uh, you never re reach a point where you convince a hundred percent of your your consumers that it's 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 totally safe, and you cannot do that as well because you you can't you're not leaving yourself room, um, and it's like Robert said it's it's a very delicate topic it's it's not always a hundred percent there's always points where things will break through. This is why we have uh, diseases coming forth from the agricultural sector. Um, but we can try to, to provide the, the safety net. And, and I think that's, that's, that's where we have to create diversity in, in, the, in, the, in the things that we are, we are producing. It's not just um, forming just insect protein as an alternative protein. We have to think about um, what other um, forms of protein supplements will come in? So people might say no to insect proteins, but it's not just not just a, a a point where you just look at insect protein and say this is the only solution to to the climate crisis right now. We we have to look at maybe cell cultured meats and and uh, you know sustainable aquaculture, shrimp production, um, stuff like that. Um, so it's a whole um, host of solutions that you have to think about together with insect proteins. So while people would say, you know, I might not agree with insect proteins, you would not be in a situation where you, you'd say, oh, but this is my only solution. No, you're gonna create a whole host of um, uh, solutions to tackle an entire problem. And this is the point we're discussing here, right? It's, do we have the scientific basis to make this work? And then do we have the ability to apply that scientific basis into the real world? As Chow has, has uh, alluded to, it's, it's legislation. The EU does have pretty, pretty strict laws governing the, the use of uh, all sorts of things in, in animal feeds. And um, as I mentioned earlier when I was talking, um, uh, the BSE crisis uh, really, I suppose, made the EU sit up and, and appreciate uh, the risks associated with particular zoonoses. Um, uh, this transfer of disease from animals to humans and, and the other way as well. Um, the, the risks coming from insects, uh, well, to be honest, it's not really until today that I've, I've, I've uh, sort of been, well, really, really given an awful lot of thought to it. Um, one, one would hope that uh, insects being uh, quite far removed from, from mammals, and as I said, they're, they're still animals, um, that, that the diseases they're susceptible are, are less likely to, to affect um, mammals. Um, but uh, clearly, as, as Robert said, there, there are um, uh, pathogens which affect both. And uh, those are things we need to be careful of. So yes, apart from those general thoughts, um, as opposed to uh, in, insightful knowledge to, to what is going on in, in, in legislation, um, uh, what I can say is uh, I have I have faith in uh, legislation, certainly in the European Union, uh, that uh, yeah they will they will keep uh, their their uh, citizens safe. So thank you for this again, Robert. Um, to come back to you, I want to ask a question of regulation and how that plays into your work to learn how to heal insects or to become an expert in in being an expert in an insect doctor. I imagine the insects must become disease in the first place, right? So yeah. are there any Sounds strange. Ethical issues around your work, laying out healing sex, um, practical issues involved with regulation, more so than you would maybe experience in other fields. The d debate is on and the, the debate will definitely um, uh, grow as more people start to accept that insects could be uh, 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 play a large role in finding solutions or at least finding, um, as Charles said, uh, uh, a multitude of um, tools which we can use to help us uh, uh, better. The situation we're going in either with climate change or in food scarcity um that's all they are they're, they're not the one uh, sorry just to create they're not the uh, uh, uh they're not the solution to take over everything but they can at least help us a long way in um uh, creating a balance uh, in this um and so as more people realize this and more people get on board with this the, the debate will increase um for example in the uk um if i correct me if i'm wrong um the, you do have to sort of go through a little bit of a mini ethics approval uh when uh, working with insects depending uh on if they uh, how you need to interact with them 
but for where I am, there was no ethics approval really needed at all. Um, and I had to send my project through the board, but I didn't have to go through any of the normal ethics requirements uh, in term, uh, 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 for the insects. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't try and practice any ethics in our work um because you know we are dealing with organisms with animals um of course we don't want to harm any animals that we don't have to harm we don't want to harm we want we don't we don't want to we want to be as humane as we can be but um within the limits of uh research um uh, unfortunately to to see this uh you will have to infect some insects to figure out what does symptoms you can see or how to treat the the virus you will have to dissect insects uh, uh to to look at things um, but of course, for example, if you're going to dissect an insect, you don't have to uh, put, uh, take it out of the colony, put it onto a plate and either squash it or, 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 or start opening it up while it's alive. There are very few cases where you may actually need to do that. And generally people try and do it on as few individuals as possible. Uh, because again, you don't want to have to do that to, you only want to do what's absolutely necessary. But if you don't have to do that at all, um, if there's no absolute requirement to do that, then uh, obviously you, you put it in the freezer because uh, at that point, it's almost like you're putting them to sleep. Um, and then uh, once they're asleep, you can then work on them because effectively they're, 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 they're dead or they're, they're knocked out. So you can sort of um, open them up quickly before they wake up. Um, and there are ways uh, people do talk and there, there are ways to sort of do that effectively, uh, depending on the insect that you are. Uh, um, but there's no formal ethics requirement. I was going to ask you, Chow, from your experiences working in industry and your time in Singapore, how would you see the ethics in industry compared to the research? I imagine this could be a very cynical comment from me, but I imagine that people in industry are more likely to cut corners to make, make profit than they would in research. Um, would that be coherent with your experiences? When we talk about industry players, um, they are definitely more profit driven than research institutes or like big governing bodies. So for sure, um, profit is always on the mind. The question is always about if I power this machine and I process my, my product in a certain method, uh, in a certain manner, uh, what, what sort of an output, what sort of quality can I sell it for? What's the sort of price point I can set it at? And uh, what's the sort of, um, what's, what's the, the overhead cost? How much am I paying to operate this machine? Stuff like that. Um, but when it comes to ethics, because there is no need for ethics at the moment, last I recall, so correct me if I'm wrong, there's currently no need for, for a, a, a whole deal of ethics um, for, for, the, for the treatment of post-processing treatment of insects, just because um, some would say that they're invertebrates. So, you know, the whole ethical issue doesn't quite um, cover as, as comprehensively as when we deal with vertebrates. And um, so then it comes to a question in which when, it, when, when industrial players start talking about post-processing and the treatment of this, this sort of uh, uh, insect products, the question more is, is more related towards um, what is the method I can use to retain more of the, the, the nutrients uh, what is the method I can use to better separate out different components of the insects? How do I process it such that I can get insect protein, insect fat, and its chitin out separately in one uh, fluid motion, in one uh, seamless uh, uh, treatment? Um, and that's always been the question. Do I microwave it? Do I um, flash, flash freezing or uh, you know, put it in hot water? And uh, what's, what's the sort of uh, uh, leaching of nutrients? Uh, what sort of loss of nutrients do I get? Questions like this is more of, a, you know, applicable to, to industrial players. Um, and I think when it comes to ethics, it's sort of um, where governing bodies like, like uh, Robert and, and Dr. Brett has mentioned, it's more of a bigger... Uh, institutions, IPIF or AFIA or the North American branch, uh, uh, or, or you know, each region has its 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 uh, organization for insects uh, and and its production for food and feed, and it's up to these uh, different organizations to bring really the whole industry together in each geographical location. Uh, 
um, and you know standardize certain methods and agree on uh, certain ways of production or share knowledge or or help each other out. And I think this is where um, ethical um, uh, issues can be talked about uh, when it comes to to insect production. And um, when we talk about ethics, of course, uh, usually we we always think about ethics in terms of insect production, but um, because this is such a nascent industry, it's such a new um, industry that's just coming out. Uh, I think very often we'll overlook, uh, you know, breaches in ethics when it comes to um, production methods or like ways in which uh, certain products are being produced or sold or where products are being uh, taken from, uh, things like that. So because there's a lot of loopholes in, in regulations um, at the moment, since everything is so new that um, we, we, we also have to be wary and have to be careful when we talk about uh, industries going through um, their, their whole business models and you know maybe certain things are not as um, ethical as you you'd think but you know it's it's always a possibility when you talk about a nascent industry a very new industry with uh, not not very well developed regulations yet. I know Henry mentioned this at the start of the recording, but I wanted to dig into this concept of an insect-based circular economy. Can one of you explain what is meant by circular economy, firstly for those who aren't aware of of what is actually meant by that term, and also how insects would fit into this and what opportunities that would present? Don't mind anyone, you can fight for it amongst yourselves if you want to answer that one. An easy example would be, in terms of circular economy, would be uh, black soldier fly uh, or meteolucence. Fortunately, both both Chow and I work <laughs> work on black soldier fly, um, and um, it's it's uh, it's a beautiful insect because again you can rear them on most things, and they're relatively easy to rear compared to some of the other insects, uh, a lot of the other insects uh, that are out there. Um, and in terms of the circular economy, uh, I, again with uh, uh, how you sort of explained it to us earlier, um, uh, I think actually uh, b- before we, we started the podcast, um, you know how, how can future um, sort of sorry how can waste become food? Um, is that BSF? Uh, they already have waste management uh, facilities where they feed a uh, BSF uh, food waste from uh, different places, from farms, from restaurants, from uh, um, wherever they can sort of obtain it. Um, and then the, the BSF are reared on this. And of course, depending uh, uh, on, on how many nutrients are in, on, on the waste or if they've got a good source, they can get a really good yield of, nu- of uh, um, nutrients, uh, I would like to say nutrient-rich BSF um, that they can then use uh, to uh, obtain the, the output products, uh, uh, um, uh, the insect protein, uh, um, the oils, uh, whatever they need, and um, then use that uh, 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 to go sort of back in. Uh, to become our, uh, products that we would use. Um, the, the, the question I would just have is just how sort of uh, how maintainable that would be if we, for example, only had BSF rearing, uh, as opposed to if we got rid of cows and we got rid of that. So the question is just uh, uh, of a circular economy, um, uh, how much can it sort of uh, uh, take over the, 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 the sort of uh, the, the, the agricultural economy, but um, and to, to make enough of a difference in terms of sustainability, but um, uh, and, and to help uh, reduce uh, or, or help with climate impacts and food scarcity, I, I would say it's a little bit. There is a limit, um, uh, but it will. Def, it's it's something that can always go along some with with other areas of agriculture. Did anyone want to add to that, Henry Chan? Yeah, I think Robert put it very beautifully. It's it's a very elegant solution when when you talk about circular economy. It is the key word that's being thrown around here and there uh, nowadays. And you know, sustainable economy, green economy, and circular economy. Um, all these are, are are being thrown around, but circular economy. It, it it really is is as Robert put it. You you put whatever bit of your waste into that that economy and it comes out and generates something productive something useful and of course it doesn't just go into insect protein uh, as it comes out as insect protein for 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 animals or livestock or, or humans as food and feed of course when you talk about insects uh, or be uh, black soldier flies or mealworms and crickets and 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 the whole load of that that whole list of insects it's 
it's uh, it, it goes into a lot of different avenues, a lot of different sectors. It's um, fresh. So it, basically it's waste uh, that it produces, the, the exoskeleton that it sheds or, or the waste that is excreted from the, the insects. It becomes a compostable uh, soil amendment that can go into the soils, into potteries and, and stuff like that. And it's uh, chitin. If you can extract chitin and push out its protein and oil um, and direct it elsewhere, chitin can be used in medical research, in, in product development, in, in a whole host of um, new synthetic, uh, biosynthetic uh, fibers. Because after all, chitin is the second most um, abundant uh, biopolymer in the entire world. So if you can um, leverage on all this, not only is it circular, you can use um, waste to, to produce something useful, that something useful is going to go into such a big part of our lives more than we actually know. And I think that's the whole elegant um, picture of using insects and, and the production of insects in, in, in our world right now. To move along swiftly, given the time, I was going to go straight on to looking a bit further into the future. Um, perhaps, Henry, you could have a go answering this one. Um, what time frame do you currently predict or does the industry currently predict for integrating what we're talking about today as being part of mainstream to the point where these things will become just a part of everyday life? Well, based on the fact that um, the use of uh, processed insect meals uh, have been legislated for in the use uh, in pigs and poultry in the EU anyway, um, I would suggest it's um, in terms of an animal feed, these insects, it's, it's uh, not far away at all. Um, providing some of these challenges, which many people are working on, um, both like Robert and Chow, et cetera, um, can be dealt with. And um, yeah, if, if I think if um, they can be shown to um, reduce the cost of feed and uh, do all the environmental things that uh, um, we are led to believe they will do, then um, I think, well, personally, I think uh, we will see them coming online quickly. My, my issue, um, and it relates to the circular economy and, and things we've talked about already, is, um, is uh, getting the perspective of what I consider sort of carbon bean counters. So um, this need to process pro, uh, insects uh, before they can be fed, that has an energy cost um, and there's all sorts of other energy costs and it's um, assessing how much uh, carbon or carbon equivalents are associated with that to actually get some sort of uh, handle on the environmental benefits associated with these things. So if we're having to burn a lot more energy in order to produce this protein, then um, they may not be as good as we hope they will be. Obviously, a big advantage of insects is that they don't require the land uh, that um, is needed to produce plant-based proteins for, for our livestock and us humans directly and indirectly through the animals we consume. So yes, I personally, I, I think um, if, if there are no major obstacles that um, we are so far unaware of, um, and, and from my perspective, I would like to see insects, uh, insect protein being used as a, well, initially as an animal feed. Uh, and who knows, for those, those who are less squeamish, uh, seeing it starting to appear in our diets as well. Time is running out. So I've got one last question for, for all of you. We take turns to answer. We are the Institute for a Greater Europe. So I was going to ask you about your positive outlook on the future. Uh, dare I say it, in the current circumstances, optimism is quite a scarce commodity. So if I could just get a sentence from, from all of you about if you're optimistic or why you might be optimistic about what this can be, it, it seems like there's a real, real chance for positive change that can come from what we've discussed today. So yeah, what to leave our listeners with something like a positive little thing to finish this, this discussion on, what, why is it so hopeful for the future, what you guys are researching? Is there something, there's definitely something positive. <laughs> I think the EU is um, in a very good position, or rather, rather the whole world currently is in a very good position to come together uh, with a common goal and a common issue to tackle um, 
especially in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, that um, collaboration and innovation would be at the front of our minds. Hence, I think we are in a very good point in time in history where we can make a difference. So that's a really nice message. Um, Robert, Well, I do think we, uh, we should be looking at this as a global uh, thing. I think the EU, a really positive thing about the EU is that um, the EU has, uh, is pushing they're pushing uh, uh, a fair amount of funding. They're pushing a fair amount of, uh, more recently, a lot more collaborative um, uh, work uh, uh, going not just uh, between Europe itself, but Europe and Africa, uh, Europe and, and the East and uh, Europe and the, the very West. Um, so I think a very positive outlook is that it's people are opening up and it's, uh, 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 and, and, and as we said before, Europe is, is, is definitely heading the, uh, we would like to think that Europe is definitely heading the safety uh, requirements, the strictness on the safety requirements in terms of this area, um, and pushing those regulations out, and 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 uh, um, things. So I think um, definitely the the world is uh, uh, doing it, but I think the EU is doing a lot to drive um, this uh, uh, forward as a more global sentiment, uh, which I think has been really great, actually. Um, as I said, coming from South Africa, coming from another place, it's nice to know that it's more about let's think about everyone and not just our, ourselves. Great. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts from you, Henry? Yeah, I mean, uh, just to add to what both Chow and, and Robert are saying um, um, uh, and what Robert ended on, sort of, you know, something that, that everybody's involved with. One, one, one thing, many, many sort of um, emerging technologies often only benefit um, sort of more industrialized countries, wealthy countries. And, and I sort of see the, the use of insects as being a technology which is applicable to people in less developed countries, smallholder farmers, for example, is something that they can they can benefit from as well. Um, and and for me, that's a, a really positive thing um, to see. So so very much, it's something that everybody can can benefit from if, if we uh, can uh, make it work. And and I I have no reasons to believe we can't. Well, we go on and on and on, I'm sure. Um, but on that note of optimism, which we all could do with a little bit of right now, I think we should leave it there. We hope you enjoyed this episode and it provided you with some alternatively sourced, perhaps even insect-based food for thought as you carry on with your day. To my guests, Dr. Henry Gretted, soon to be Dr. Robert Pienaar and Uda Chao. Thank you all of you very much for joining. Make sure to keep up to date with all that we do as Institute. Follow us on social media to see our latest articles, podcasts, videos, and projects we're undertaking. So with that shameless plug over, all I can say is one more huge thank you to you for listening. And we'll be back with the next Greater European Talks podcast in no time at all. Take care.